There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are heading into the 19th century today, and we've got with us Rig Derrick, who's an author and historian. Uh, she's with us today to talk about her new book, Bertrand's Brother, The Marriages, Morals and Misdemeanors of Frank II Earl Russell. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you. Nice so excited. Yeah, we're so excited. We're going to do 19th century. And um, this is a really great book, actually. Uh, I got reading um, a week ago, two weeks ago, I got reading the book and um, found out a lot of very interesting things. But before um, before we get into the nitty gritty, because uh, not many people know about Frank, do they? No, I should think, I should imagine he's um, he's unknown to an awful lot of people. Many more people will know, obviously, his much more famous brother, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher. Um, but yeah, Frank is a, an unknown person, largely. So let's talk about the, the Russell family. I mean, can you outline and tell us who who were they and why are they actually so important in British history? Um, the Russell family were a fascinating family, aristocrats. Uh, first of them to be ennobled uh, had served Henry VII and was a personal friend and equerry of Henry VIII. Um, he was ennobled by him, made Earl of Bedford. Um, others in the father, uh, William, second son of the fifth, tried and hanged for his part in the assassination of Charles II. Um, have uh, Russells who have developed large swathes of London. Uh, so uh, Bloomsbury in particular, the fourth and fifth dukes developed. And then if we come forward a little bit to the uh, 19th century, we have Lord John Russell, who was British Prime Minister twice. This is Frank's branch of the family now. He was the third son of the sixth Duke of Bedford, Lord John Russell, um, a Whig reformer and Frank's grandfather. So uh, that puts them, Frank a little bit into perspective. He inherited the title from his grandfather due to the early death of his own father. Um, yeah, and was, as I said, older brother of, of Bertrand Russell, mathematician, logician, political, social reformer. Um, so a, a very illustrious family and very in family. So talking about politics, I mean, that should pretty much lay out what kind of path he takes, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. Yes, and... Um, both of his grandfathers were Whig politicians. Uh, his, on his mother's side, uh, his father, the um, Edward II Baron Stanley of Ad, was fairly radical, and the whole family were free thinkers. So they were on the more radical side of... Uh, and Frank himself, when he got into politics, first as a liberal and eventually became a, a keen supporter of the Labour Party. Very unusual for a peer. <laughs> well, 
Let's start with his early life. I mean, I, this for me probably was the most interesting part. I mean, don't get me wrong, the book was great, but his early life for me is just so fascinating and what happens and where he goes and what he does and how he, especially how he behaves, I think. So what do we actually know about his early life? Okay, so he was born to Lord John's son, uh, Viscount Amberley, and Kate Stanley, who was the daughter of Edward II Baron Stanley of Adderley. Um, and he lived with his parents in uh, Gloucestershire initially, and then they moved to a house in Monmouthshire, in a small village uh, called Trelec. And they had a very modern approach to upbringing of children. And so Frank was brought up to be incredibly independent. And as his mother put it, she liked him to be useful. And they followed, the, the Amberleys followed some very modern up-to-the-minute views on uh, 18 children, um, which were very radical for their time and certainly for the class of people that we're talking about. Um, so Amberley was friends with uh, John Stuart Mill, the philosopher John Stuart Mill, and uh, they read up on bringing up children. And actually, uh, Frank's education at home um, was the, the theories of people like Friedrich Horrible, who did the, develop the kindergarten system. So the, the, the children were brought up to spend a lot of their parents, which was unusual for mid-Victorian aristocratic families, um, but also to spend a lot of time on their and were given complete freedom uh, to do an awful, awful lot of things that, that they wanted to do. Uh, so Frank talks uh, about being allowed out of his little sister Rachel, this was before Bertrand was, brought, was born, uh, being allowed out to wander the lanes and paths and get up to mischief and go about barefoot and climb trees and all of that sort of thing. Um, and then at the same time, he was allowed to read whatever books he wanted to read. He was allowed to do pretty much what he wanted to do, um, which was very radical, as I said, at the time. Uh, and for Frank, he was quite a headstrong child, to say the least. Um, <laughs> it, it, made him, it made him quite willful, and he became a bit of a handle, a bit of a handful, actually. Um, you know, his, his early confident years when he was a, a, a small child, um, yeah, by the time he'd, he'd reached the age of five or six, um, his father certainly uh, with his behaviour. I think um, it's something you wrote that uh, he was overstimulated, apparently. Yeah, this, think... this is a beautiful period piece, actually, you know. The idea... Uh, or the, the thought was Frank started to develop headaches um, and to be very, very willful, very strong, very and very quickly. Um, and so because uh, his mother followed to the letter uh, the educational policy that she used with him, um, which to not suppress any of his natural quality, um, but to allow him to do whatever he wanted, um, they came to the conclusion there must be something medically wrong with him. They took him to a doctor in London who diagnosed being overstimulated. Overstimulation of brain was the way it was described. Um, so for a good couple of years, Frank was not allowed to be contradicted 
and uh, not allowed to be given too many lessons. And of course, that put an awful lot of power into his hands. And uh, yeah, it became uh, a little bugger, I think. You know, when you write it in the book, it's just so elegantly written and so, so, I would have basically written, he was a brat. <laughs> yeah, um, I think you could, you could put it as that, um, on level. Um, and certainly he tried his parents' patience a lot. The term they used, uh, the term they used in the Victorian time was just a, a limb of Satan, which is very <laughs> hard, you know. But he was also uh, very outgoing, very kind uh, at that age. And um, very intelligent, very smart kid. Well, I mean, that shows because he ends up, he gets up privately educated and then he actually goes to Oxford University where, wait for it, he studies history, not just history, he studies classics. We studies the classics. Yeah. But my yeah. question for you at this point is: Is this a happy time for him being at Oxford, rather because he wasn't? He does say at certain points that he wasn't too happy in his childhood. But does this become a better time for him? Yes. Um, when Frank was, perhaps we should go back just a little bit. When Frank was eight, um, he had diphtheria which he passed on to his mother and sister, and they both died. Within 18 months, his father had died. So by the time Frank was 10, he was orphaned, and he was taken from this uh, place where he, he grew up to, uh, to, with great freedom um, to live with his grandparents, Lord John and Lady John, uh, at Pembroke Lodge in Richmond Park. Um, and the atmosphere in that house was completely different. It was very austere. There were a lot more regulations. Frank had been brought up without religion completely. Um, and suddenly he had to go to church. Suddenly he had to conform, if you like, to a much more uh, conventional Victorian upbringing. Um, you know, he rebelled. He ran away. Um, and his grandparents, again, not knowing quite what to do with him, sent him to school. So he went to Cheam originally, and then he went to Winchester College. And Winchester really started to um, become happier. He made some good friends there, in particular the uh, poet Lionel Johnson, as he uh, as was there. And uh, friendships became really important to him. And the sense of brotherhood that he got through those friendships was really important to him. Uh, and so starting at Winchester, and then when he went to Oxford, he just was breathing free air again. So being able to talk to much more broad-minded people, uh, the freedom to discuss anything was something that he really embraced. Um, and that, as I said, that sense of brotherhood but unfortunately for him, um, his friend father got him into trouble, and uh, his um, his time at Oxford came to a very sudden end uh, when he was accused of having written an improper letter to one of the male undergraduates, and he was sent down. I love that inappropriate letter. I mean, would we class that? Letter. 
nowadays, would that be inappropriate for us? Uh, I have no idea because the letter hasn't survived. Uh, Frank claims that he was never shown the letter. There's a lot of speculation that this isn't what happened at all, actually. Um, but Frank had had his old school friend, Lionel Johnson, up to stay, had allowed him to stay in rooms at the university, which was not allowed, that the nature of their relationship was misconstrued. Um, and Frank, when he was, was changed about the whole thing by um, the vice chancellor of the university, whose, whose name was Benjamin Jowett, um, got into a tantrum, basically, and uh, told Jowett that he was a gentleman and demanded to, to have an inquiry which was denied him. Uh, and, and the whole thing escalated and Frank was sent. So he's now thrown out of Oxford. Yes. Um, uh, Which, if you can imagine, uh, for a man in his position at that time, this was hugely significant for him. It was a huge scandal. It was difficult for the whole family. Um, and... Yeah, that was very likely the end of his career right there. But he did, it, it isn't, is it? I mean, he, he ends no. up, do you know what? I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this next part. The reason being is he does things that COVID is stopping pretty much most of us doing. And exactly. it is, it is, it made me so jealous reading and I'm like, oh my God, I want to go out and do this. This is just absolutely, <laughs> this is amazing. So tell us, what does he do after he leaves Oxford? Well, the family decided the best thing to do was get him out of the way for the bit, to let the scandal die down, let the dust settle. Uh, so he was sent on, I suppose, what one might call the modern equivalent then of a grand tour. Um, but instead of going and doing, you know, Italy and, and the continent, sent to America, uh, him and a, um, a tutor who went with him um, did a tour of, of the United States. Um, so he he went to New York, and from New York he went uh, well across the country, basically uh, Philadelphia, Chicago, across. Colorado, uh, California, back via Texas and back round again, uh, on a tour that, that took him, uh, well, from uh, from the autumn through to the following spring, he's sending down, yeah. And he meets many ladies, doesn't he? He meets a lot of people. Um, he's, uh, again, another beautiful period piece. Um, was uh, when he describes uh, walking up to the front door of the White House and knocking on the door and securing an appointment to see the the, the president uh, the following day. And um, his personal favourite of the whole trip was that uh, he, he went to see Walt Whitman at his house. Uh, he was a huge fan of Walt Whitman. And uh, so that was a high point in the trip for him. But it was a, it was a lot of mixed emotions around that trip because he was obviously very angry about how he had been ousted early as he saw it from Oxford. He was missing his friends back home. And yet at the same time, he was getting all these new experiences. He had a lot to say about America. Not all complimentary, I have to admit. Um, but, you know, he enjoyed seeing the... Uh, the industry that was evolving there and 
adapt a very different lifestyle to what he'd been used to over here. He ends up turning down uh, a young lady, doesn't he? But um, it doesn't quite go so well when he goes back to the UK because he, he wrote, if I'm not mistaken, he wrote something that um, I'm not ready to settle down with this. She was very keen, wasn't she, this young yes, American she girl? She was very keen. And uh, I think he thought I'd get stuck in America. <laughs> you know, so he was sort of like, no, I need, I need to go home. And in actual fact, he goes home and then has uh, a second adventure, if you like. Uh, he he bought himself a steam yacht and uh, started off by taking it up and down the Thames and then around the coast of England and then across to Belgium and then uh, gets a little crew together and some of his old mates from university and uh, they go off on a Mediterranean tour that takes them um, best part of six months all told all the way down, round the coast of France, down into Italy, uh, round the coast of Italy and so on and back up again. And uh, yeah, a real adventure. He, he really lets his hair down for a bit. Now I'm going to say Mabel Edith Scott, his first wife. Wow. Um, mm. I think she takes up a large chunk, doesn't she? I mean, she is really important to the story and she just she lasts such a long period of time you just can't shake her but let's let's talk about the beginning how did they meet first of all and uh, how was their marriage because um i think that's probably the most uh, interesting point rather than uh, rather than how they met yeah well how they met actually is funny it's interesting because um her mother lady scott uh, was widow and she was uh, she was quite a character. She was described as an adventurous, um, and her her purpose with her daughters was to marry them. Uh, they had financial problems of their own. Frank didn't know about that at the time that they married, uh, but she was determined that Mabel was going to marry well. So uh, Frank moved to. Um, an area on the Teddington on the Thames, he moved to a house called Broom, Broom Hall. And he um, moved to an area where the Scots were living. And Lady Scott turned up at his door one day with Mabel, knocked on the door, and oh, on pretense, by the pretense that they knew him. Uh, they didn't know him, uh, but they invited him out on uh, the river with them and to see their house and so on. And uh, it has to be said, Lady Scott used all her womanly wiles to make sure that, that Frank uh, and Mabel married. Uh, she captured, I would say, for her daughter. Um, the marriage was a complete disaster. It lasted about three months, uh, during which time the, the personality clash between Mabel and uh, was something else entirely. You know, Frank expected Mabel to uh, do as, as he wished, be his supportive wife and to be useful and practical and all the things he'd been brought up to be. Uh, Mabel had other ideas. She'd expected to marry an earl, become a countess, have a, enter society, you know, and, uh, and have a very different lifestyle. Um, and she, as I say, the, month, the, the marriage lasted no more than three months um, she ran away. She couldn't cope with his his moods and his behaviour and, and so on. And um, there began 10 years of legal battle 
to separate and, and then divorce, which, as you say, up a fair amount of Francis' story. And the reason for that, which I'd, I'd like to explain a bit, if I may, Oh, please um, do, because it's, it's so interesting, this, the, the court proceedings and, 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 and everything else, because, I mean, you document this really well in the book. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because it is, it's fascinating. Yeah, um, it wasn't easy to divorce then, not by any stretch. Um, the, the divorce laws in England were very strict. A man could divorce his wife for adultery, but a woman needed to... Uh, two crimes, two marital crimes, if you like. Um, adultery in conjunction with the else like tea or desertion or something of that nature. So the only possibility for Mabel Edith was to uh, sue for a separation of grounds of Frank's cruelty. And uh, she listed things like he made her do the accounts when she was unwell and he made her count the wine in their wine cellar and when she wasn't feeling herself and those sorts of things which were fairly not huge in the grand scheme of things. Um, but she also accused him of uh, leaving her for the company of a male university friend in the early hours of the morning when they were newly married. So this university friend uh, who went by the name of uh, Herbert Ainsley Roberts, had come to stay in their house. And uh, Mabel's accusation was that after she had gone to bed, Frank would go up and sit and chat or whatever uh, in Robert's bedroom uh, until the early hours of the morning. He claimed that this allegation was innocent in any kind of sexual connotation, uh, innocent of any sexual connotation, um, that what she was trying to say was that Frank was not giving her as much attention as she should have done. But unfortunately, when it caught, uh, it was worded in such a way that it was misconstrued, if you like. And so suddenly you've got a where Frank is, to all intents and purposes, um, being charged with the possibility of a homosexual liaison with Roberts, um, which, of course, sexuality was then illegal. If you proved actual homosexual act, it could get you up to 10 years penal servitude. Um, the homosexual behaviour, as, as is very well known with the, the whole Oscar Wilde uh, trial and so on, you know, you were talking the possibility of two years hard labour. So uh, for Frank, this was critical and he couldn't not defend this, even though in the divorce court that wasn't a criminal charge. But if May got a judicial separation with clause in her petition, then Frank would have potentially left himself wide open for a criminal proceeding against him. So it was key for Frank. And that really, that issue, is what kept them in the divorce court for such a long time. I find it quite ironic that uh, she actually asks him to come back to her, doesn't she, at one stage? She does. She does. But this is the legal gambit. Uh, so essentially, she didn't get her judicial separation. 
Um, and then the only thing she could then do uh, would try and suggest that he'd deserted her when actually she'd left him. So what she did was wrote to him and asked to come back after that court case. Uh, Frank declined, as you can imagine. Um, and the reason being that if he then declined to come back, if she, she could go to the court and ask for restitution of conjugal rights, which basically means uh, the court orders him to go back to her and support her. Um, and to do that, she could then separate from him on the grounds of his decision. So it was a complete legal gambit. She didn't really want to go back to him. Um, it was her only means of separating from him. And of course, the other thing to remember is that she separated from him. He would have then had to have supported her financially for the rest of their lives. And judicial separation would not have allowed either of them to remain. So it was real, it, you know, it, it was a real situation. It, it needed fighting from Frank's perspective. Um, it was a real stalemate for quite a long time. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I mean, the marriage, the marriage drama does continue, but before we get down, and down that rabbit hole, let's talk a little bit about um, his kind of the way he enters into politics because he does follow not necessarily his grandfather's footsteps but he follows more his father's footsteps in uh, 1894 is his career successful and do we know if he actually enjoyed it okay. uh, in 1894 the local government brought into being parish and district councils and frank had friends he didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life i don't think at that point but friends suggested to him that he might enjoy this and, and to stand for uh, the council elections, which he did. And so he got on the parish council, the district council, and he loved it. He found uh, that it was it was right up his street. He became a justice of the peace in May, where he'd taken a house. Um, and as part of his um, his commitment or his duties, if you like, to the uh, district Council, he became uh, responsible for the administration of the workhouse in Maidenhead, and he found that this work really suited him, the political work, so particularly the social work, um, really, really suited him. 
1895, he then stood for election to London County Council, which was hugely influential then. Um, and he developed a, um, an interest in motoring, motor cars. This was the early days of uh, motoring. And uh, he had his own car and worked his way onto the Highways Committee of London County Council. Um, but what he found was his actual forte was standing up for the underdog. He liked that. That was that became his uh, raison d'etre, like in his political career. Um, so he, the the two committees he was most keen on the Highways Committee, which obviously suited his interests in motoring, but also uh, the Asylums Committee, where he started at Maidenhead Workhouse. He he then worked on the Asylums Committee at Lyme Council, um, campaigned for better care, better treatment of the insane. And, uh, you know, yeah, so he, he enjoyed it enormously. Um, and I think probably this was the start of a, a long career. You know, he, he could have taken up his position in the House of Lords. He didn't at that point involved in the House of Lords, but he, he found his feet in local policy and at the county council. He is so fascinating in how many causes he actually campaigned for and how many people he actually... I can't believe we don't know more about him and that this is the first book that's been written about this man. Uh, I agree. Um, I think when... The, the problem with Frank, the difficulty with Frank, if you like, uh, is that he... He was not a party man. He was his own. When he was at the London County Council, although he stood for the progressives who were uh, part of the local government faction of, of the Liberal Party, um, or aligned to the Liberal Party, he, he very much did his own thing. So if he saw an injustice or he saw something that wasn't right, he would campaign for it, whether it was part of the party system or not. Um, very outspoken and fell, I guess, through uh, in a lot of gaps, you know, so history doesn't pick him up in quite the same way he would if he'd been uh, working his way up the party, perhaps as a uh, an MP and, um, you know, that sort of thing. He, he, he was his own man. And I think that that probably worked against him as far as history is concerned. Okay, let's go back to the, the marriages, because however much the first marriage was a total and absolute disaster, his second marriage causes total chaos, because he marries Molly after divorcing Mabel, and then, then he ends up in prison for it, doesn't he? What happens? Why does he end up there? Okay, so uh, after this battle with Mabel, he gone on so long. They've got themselves, as I said, into a real stalemate. So uh, what Frank does, he, he meets Molly. Molly, Molly was uh, a campaigner for him uh, in the 1898 London County Council election. Uh, she was a very spirited, political, strong, middle-class, married woman. Um, but they fell in love. They fell in love, is the, is the long and the short of it. And uh, Molly was prepared to emigrate with Frank to America. Uh, they elope, 
and lived for six months in America in order to secure what was then known as a migratory divorce in the American courts. Um, better known later on as a Reno divorce, which was for something people moved there and get a divorce they couldn't get elsewhere. So having been denied a divorce in England, Molly and Frank lived for six months in a very small village in Nevada, in America, and um, so that they can make use of the legal system, they did their relative uh, spouses out there and remarry and then come back to the UK. But the difficulty is that um, the English courts did recognise the American divorce. So when Frank came back to the UK, he found himself technically guilty of bigamy and uh, this is what actually happened. He was gambling, if you like, that these courts would allow him finally uh, a UK and English divorce from Mabel Edith on the grounds of his adultery with Molly and his bigamy uh, in having married in America, but that the court would turn a blind eye and unfortunately didn't. Um, and so Frank was charged with bigamy and because he was an earl uh, had to be tried in the house of lords um, with a jury of his peers and so at the beginning of the uh, 20th century 1901 he suddenly finds himself being tried with full pomp and ceremony in the house of lords uh, in what can only be described as a sort of a medieval style uh, trial and he is guilty. He has to plead guilty and is sentenced to three months in Holloway. The trial only lasts two out two hours. This trial lasts, doesn't it? I know. It was a, there was a huge amount of preparation for it. Uh, in the in the press, it went on for weeks. You know what what was going to happen. Uh, all the preparations for, for it. Uh, it. It was. It was interesting, and then rather an anticlimax at the end of the day, uh, because Frank has no choice but to plead guilty. Uh, he gives a speech. Um, he's allowed to give a speech in mitigation, uh, in which he talks about his ordeal, if you like, English courts, and he gains a certain amount of sympathy um, from the from the peers, but they can't let him off the hook. So he goes to prison as a first-class misdemeanor for three months. But prison life, um, so when you think about the 19th century prison, you, you have hard labour in your head. Life is difficult. Life is hard. It is a place you just do not want to end up. However... But not for what a misdemeanor. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So well, what is life like for Frank in um, prison? Well, obviously, he, he's incarcerated. He has to stay there. But as you really say, there's no hard labor. He doesn't have a plank bed to sleep on. He's allowed to bring in his own stuff. how to communicate with the outside world. So whereas if you were, um, if, if you've been sentenced to hard labor or if you were uh, not a first-class misdemeanor, you would only get, I suppose, a maximum of one letter every three months from the outside world. Frank was allowed Molly to go and see him. 
he was allowed to buy in his own food and drink. He was allowed to read whatever books he wanted. Um, and so he, he spent his time relaxing and actually talks in his own autobiography about um, entertaining the prison warden and, you know, the laughing with him and, and the prisoner and so on and, and having quite a good time once he'd got over the annoyance being there. Um, having not too bad a time of it at all. Uh, he has plenty of time to reread his Bible, to read the complete works of Shakespeare twice, and to write a book. So he comes out of prison with manuscript for a book of uh, lay sermons that he publishes within six months of his release. I just, the moment where I read that his meals were brought from the outside and they were served by a tent, I think that did it for me. Exactly. Yeah, he had his own servant, uh, who was one of the one of the lower class prisoners. Actually, he was allowed to, to have as a servant. Gosh, it paid to be an earl in prison, didn't it? Didn't it though? Yeah, yeah. He was kind of treated. I suppose one could say he was royalty for the uh, for the prison. Not their usual sort of uh, prisoner. So then he's released from prison and then again he goes back to campaigning, but this time he starts to campaign for divorce reforms, which eventually lead him to support the women's suffrage movement. Was he as successful in achieving any of these reforms regarding divorce or women? It depends how you measure your success. So um, essentially what he did was when he came out of prison, he decided what had put him there were the divorce laws, and that they needed completely revamping. So he presented a bill in 1902 into the House of Lords to completely rewrite the divorce laws, and it's thrown out. The, the Lord Chancellor was livid, only word to describe it. It was described as an insult to uh, the peers in the House of Lords, um, it didn't frank off. He, he revamped it a bit, came back in 1903, presented another one, and then, and then and so on, set up Society for Divorce Law Reform. Uh, and he really got the bit between his teeth, actually. But what he, was, what he was proposing was far too radical for the time. There was really no, no interest in revamping the divorce laws. On the one hand, it's a very interesting because on the one hand you have a lot of uh, campaigning for uh, freedoms and suffrage as you've rightly said that Frank also got involved with um, there were a, 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 there was a lot of that going on but on the other hand it was there were a lot of Puritans and it was a time when um, there was a lot of resistance to reform so did Frank achieve his aim not by himself, no, but he was a pioneer. And I think that that is perhaps another thing where I'm given due credit for his role in, in bringing to the attention of um, other people the, the uh, inequality and the harshness of the divorce laws at the time. Um, so one thing that he proposed came about, but not for a very long time after his death. See, that's, that is a statement in the book that you write, that it, it wasn't until after he died 
that some of these reforms came in, so he didn't manage to live long enough to see what he'd worked so hard for. Exactly, exactly. But there was a great deal of resistance to it with the women's suffrage movement as well. Uh, when he got involved, uh, Molly, his second wife, um, was a campaigner for the women's suffrage movement. Uh, this was the early days in that pain. So we're talking now 1907, 1908. Uh, um, the Pankhursts, who are obviously huge figures in the suffrage movement, had only come to Manchester to London in 1906. So this was really early on. Um, and the Liberal Prime Minister Asquith just wasn't having any of it. And it's very well documented his battle with the suffrage. Um, but Frank played his part. He spoke frequently on the platform of the Men's League for Women's Suffrage. And he also, he had, in between going to America and uh, being married, and then he came back and spent his time in prison, he read for the bar and uh, became a, a barrister and defended a lot of suffragettes um, in the early days of the movement, you know, represented them in court and so on. So he really did his bit. Um, and it was Frank that actually, when he campaigned for a cause, he, he gave it his full support and his support never wavered. Speaking about Molly, I mean, this marriage for me works ideally. I mean, they're both campaigners, they're both reformers. They seem to be working mm -hmm. well. However, the marriage isn't <laughs> as happy. And you know exactly where I'm leading down the, this road. The marriage <laughs> isn't happy. He eventually divorces her, so divorce number two on the cards. And instead, he marries the novelist Elizabeth uh, von Arnhem. Yes. And she's okay. so interesting, isn't she? I mean, she, she has an affair with H.G. Wells. So what was their marriage like, and was it successful? Well, um... Molly and Frank, I would say, were absolutely fine, so long as they had a cause. And uh, after Molly, Molly had an episode of thought, if you like, uh, with the Women's Freedom League that she worked with. Um, and afterwards, retired more or less to uh, her and Frank's house on the South Downs. And that wasn't great for the two of them. Frank found himself a lot of time in London on his own. Uh, Molly down on the South Downs on her own, and they argued and so on. Um, but somehow they uh, came into contact with Elizabeth von Arnhem through uh, what I've described as the sort of Venn diagrams uh, in London. That, you know, they, they came into contact. And Molly struck up a friendship with Elizabeth. Um, Frank, for his part, fell head over his um, as you say, she had a relationship with H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells described it as a full affair, a sexual relationship. Um, biographers of Elizabeth are less convinced. They say he was uh, exaggerating this to a degree. Uh, but, you know, whatever the basis of Elizabeth's relationship with Wells, um, it brought her even more into Frank's circle. Frank was friendly with H.G. Wells. He knew him from... Uh, his London club, the Reform Club, and he invited them down to his house on the South Downs, and uh, they they struck up a, a friendship. Uh, when Elizabeth 
and Wells fell out. Um, Frank saw his chance, shall we say, and uh, pursued Elizabeth and very quickly won her. And then one might say completely overwhelmed her would be a good way to describe <laughs> um, she her, her story is that she uh, embarked on an affair with Frank, thinking him safely married. Uh, Frank, on the other hand, saw her as an independent woman. And he was, I think he really genuinely was madly in love with her. Um, she touched something in him very deeply, and I think he decided he had to have her. He was asked to step aside, which she did, uh, and he married Elizabeth. Except it's not um, not as happy as we seem to think this marriage, is it? It was not a success at all, I think would be a good way of putting it. We're, we're getting now towards uh, the First World War. Uh, lived in Switzerland, but her previous husband was German. Um, there is the suggestion that had there not been a war, there would not be a match. Uh, in part, she saw it as a way of escaping her, her German connections, if you like. Um, Frank was determined that she should come to England and, and be his bride. Um, but as we know, from childhood, he had been a demanding, if not a slightly tyrannical uh, chap, and he expected Elizabeth to be his wife in, in every sense to support him. And he suffered from uh, temper tantrums. She describes to him his changing moods. Um, and where Molly, I think, was a strong enough personality to resist, she found a way of dealing with Frank, which described as a combination of mothering and diplomacy. Uh, Elizabeth seems not to have been able to to find the same um, the same success with Frank, and the marriage lasts less than three years, and then she she runs away basically. And uh, they never divorced. They they separated and, and united. Frank, he's such a he's such a complicated person, isn't he? I mean, his personality. There's nothing straightforward about Frank, is there? There is not. No, <laughs> he's just he's so fiery, and he wants what he wants when he wants it. But he also campaigns and gets he gets it done or tries to yes. get it done. Indeed. And I think it's it's one of those things, actually, you can't divorce those two things, two parts of his personality. Um, he is by nature rebellious and he is by nature a tester. You know, it's what he likes to do. And uh, it's it's the flip side of the same coin, really. So uh, although he's difficult with, to say the very least, he puts the same energy into his causes. Um, and, and so, yes, a very complex personality. I mean, he continues to advocate for reform post uh, First World War, all the way yeah. to his death in '31. I mean, without giving away too much from the book, what else does he manage to change? Um, well, during the war, he supported the campaign uh, for fair treatment of conscientious objectors. Um, 
he thought the the way the conscientious objectors were treated was despicable, and um, he joined his brother, actually Bertrand Russell, in that campaign. Uh, thereafter, he took up a number of popular courts, actually at the time that he saw as being morally uh, justified and morally essential, actually. I would go that far. Um, so he joined uh, Dr. Mary Stopes in her campaign for um, birth control to be uh, made available to working class women. And uh, she actually offered him the presidency of her Society for Constructive Birth Control. Um, but unfortunately, Frank's prior uh, imprisonment and his reputation on, a, on his uh, personal level, she had a position, so he was able to take that role. But that's one that he chose, one, one campaign that he chose that he thought was incredibly important and necessary on different levels. You know, he thought that for health reasons, for social reasons, um, you know, that this was something that, that needed confronting. So he wasn't scared to pick causes that actually uh, were, going to, were going to bring him um, up against a certain amount of, of resistance, if you like. Ruth, that has been just, this has been so amazing. I think Frank was absolutely incredible. Um, I am on your side here, supporting <laughs> him. However, however difficult of a human being he was, I mean, he did advocate and he did do so much for England and we just don't talk about him enough. Can you remind us the name of the book so uh, that um, our listeners can go to our bookstore and grab themselves a copy? Certainly. Uh, the book is called Bertrand's Brother, Marriages, Moral and Misdemeanors of Frank, Second Earl Russell. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.